Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Five Rings to Rule Them All. I'm Sid Ziegler. If you've been following Outsports for the last 10 years, you probably know the name Chris Mosier. Chris is a transgender athlete who has been a real trailblazer over the last decade. And over the last few years, he's been part of Team USA, representing the United States in the duathlon, which is a combination of running and biking. He's also been a triathlete for many years. The duathlon is not in the Olympic Games and isn't part of the Olympic system. And Chris has had a dream of being a part of that Olympic system for many years. He's also identified the importance of being part of the Olympic movement and being an out trans man uh, while doing it. The, the power of the inspiration that can create. So in the last year, he found his way to a new sport, race walking, which is an Olympic sport. And earlier this year, he competed at the U.S. Olympic Trials for race walking. It was just his third race ever. He had qualified for the Olympic, Olympic Trials and he competed. It was an important moment for not just him, but for transgender athletes. You know, there's this idea that trans women can dominate women's sports just by walking into them, which of course is totally false. But there's also an idea that trans men have no chance at all in competing against cisgender men. Chris has proven time and time again that that is not true. And he's yet again shown it in his newly adopted sport. I caught up with Chris to talk about not just his experience at the Olympic trials, but just how he has gone from a kind of uh, an athlete that nobody knew about to now is a Nike endorsed athlete. So without further ado, Here's my conversation with race walker and do athlete and triathlete, Chris Moser. Well, I'm thrilled to be joined now by Chris Moser. And when I started this podcast focusing on LGBTQ people in and around the Olympics, I, I really wondered how am I going to get trans people who are in and around the Olympics because there's never been an out trans athlete at the Olympics. There aren't many, um, you know, who even qualify for the trials. And Chris, I'm so thrilled that you're now my second trans person in like three months. It's amazing how much has changed in the landscape over just over just the last year. Yeah, it's fantastic. Thanks for having me on. And I, I think it's it's indicative indicative of where we're at right now that more and more athletes are feeling comfortable being true to their identity and playing the sports that they love. And, you know, I think we are on the uh, verge of having that moment of having a trans Olympian. And it's really exciting to see the, the new names and faces that are popping up right now. Well, a huge part of this is you. And, and so I was going to do this interview the other direction, but I think we're just, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to flip the, the, the order we're going to talk about. Um, I want to talk about how we got here because we got here in part because I remember being in Portland years ago, 2013 or 2012. I can't remember where, when it was. And we were at Nike was hosting an LGBT sports summit. And most people didn't know who Chris Mosier was. And the, most of the media just had no interest in paying attention to Chris Mosier. 
And I remember you talking about you are going to change that. You are going to change how people pay attention to you and to trans athletes. And I, I'm so interested in, in just hearing like retrospective thoughts on specifically what did you do? Because, because you were intentional about getting to this place and you got there. So I'm just curious, like, what are some of the things that stand out to you over the years that you did, other than just being a great athlete, that got us here? Yeah, I mean, I think it was really my focus. Uh, it's funny, thinking back about those meetings, um, I, was, I was so early in my transition, and, and I have a lot of memories of meeting up with people in the LGBTQ plus community at that time and really trying to figure out and navigate my interactions with them because you're right i wasn't uh, sponsored by nike at that time i wasn't on team usa at that time and i was really just starting my journey as a male athlete at that time in 2012 and, and 13 i was very early in competing as a man what i remember about that time period which is really funny is i remember sitting in that nike meeting and i think i had either just started or was about to start transathlete.com and that was really the moment where I was like, you know, I'm going to use my platform as an athlete to create policy change. And that was really the main focus and where I started. Um, I started transathlete.com in 2013. So around that time, really out of necessity because of the own, my own sort of horrible experience that I had in trying to come out and navigate policies in sport to continue to run, to continue to do triathlons and do athlons as a man after transition. So, you know, my, my goal was really to be able to create change in that way and to do it in a way that enabled other athletes to never have to go through what I went through. And so you know, that's sort of like the foundation of all of this of how I got here today is that I wanted to create an easier pathway for every trans athlete who came after me. And at that time, I was working with college student athletes through uh, Go Athletes, which is no longer an organization, but served an amazing purpose for many years in connecting um, LGBTQ plus high school and college athletes together sort of before social media did that for us. Um, and I was listening to the experiences of people who were uh, non-binary, who, who identified as trans, who didn't want to come out, who didn't want to play sports anymore, and thought, you know, there's, there's a real opportunity for me to be visible as an out athlete to help other people you know, know that they can do whatever their sport is as well. You're, you're, you're a Nike-sponsored athlete, which is uh, just incredible. I, I remember remember you asking me years ago about getting them to sponsor you. And I remember going to the folks at Be True and they're like, no, we don't do that. And, <laughs> and here you are. How did you do that? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I, I did ask. I really did. Um, it was something that I really wanted just because I have always been a Nike athlete, like a, just like in me as a person when I was a kid. That's always the brand that I was attracted to, drawn to. My favorite athletes were Nike athletes. So for me, it was a no-brainer. I was like, this is where I'm supposed to be. And I remember asking people at those meetings or people that I had contacts with, you know, what is it going to take for you to sponsor a, a transgender athlete? Um, 
and you know, I think for, for a while there was probably no value in it for Nike because I wasn't winning races. I wasn't competing at a high level. I was just another athlete. Uh, but I think when I made Team USA, that was really the moment where I had this this news peg and and an indication of what was to come. And so I just asked, you know, like, what do I have to do to be sponsored? I remember sending them sort of information about me. And then it, it kind of just sat there. And, and I think it just took the right time, the right moment in time. Um, and then also, you know, the right timing in terms of my athletic performance for all of those pieces to come together. And you mentioned the Be True brand. What was really cool about this was I was featured in the Be True ads in 2018 and 2019, which was amazing. But when Nike signed me, they wanted to make it very clear that I was not a Be True athlete. I was not just a queer athlete or a trans athlete, but I was a Nike athlete. And you know, in 2016, when they signed me and they did the commercial on me that uh, aired during the Rio Olympics, and they wanted to make it very clear that I was another another athlete in their stable of athletes in their entire Nike family, not just the queer athlete or the trans athlete. And I think they've been great doing that, whether with Jason Collins or or, or other you know LGBTQ athletes. It's they, they they really they really don't pigeonhole people into well, you're part of this community. We're going to keep you over here. They they celebrate athletes in front of everyone, whether it's you know, Colin Kaepernick or Chris Mosier, we are going to celebrate who this person is in front of the world. Yeah, and that's, and that's been a really important part for me because when I came out in 2010, uh, the first article that I did was in the Advocate magazine, New York Times shortly after. I'm pretty sure Outsports very shortly after that as well. And when I first came out, I knew that I would forever be the trans athlete. Um, you know, and, and, and I've since built a brand on top of that that title and that and that phrase. But you know, there are certain times where I was like, you know, why when I win a race does it have to be the trans athlete? Or I ran around Manhattan, uh, New York City, for charity, and it was trans man with the heart of gold runs around New York City. And I was like, what does that have to do with my athletic performance or my event? You know. Um, so I think it's really important and refreshing for me that they treat me as athlete first and also embrace and love and, and promote my identity as a trans athlete. But that's not all that I am to them or or in that platform. For me, I think highlighting that you're trans in headlines, it goes back to what you and I, what you have talked about really is just being that person that I wish I'd seen when I was 12 and mm -hmm. making sure that those, those younger trans people know that yes, this person is out there. They are a role model. They are doing amazing things. So, you know, people ask, people criticize outsports from time to time because we'll say right in the headline, you know, gay football player or trans athlete. And for us, it is that it is making sure those kids know that they see the visibility of who this athlete is and how it's like them. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think that's super, super important. And I think there was actually a time when I struggled with it a little bit because I had made that decision to be out and to be public. And at the same time, being out and being public was a challenge because it's not all love and support that that's sent towards a transgender athlete. And so um, I think I had a, a short period of time where I was like, man, why does this have to happen? And then, you know, the full 
turn of events and, and understanding that it is super important that it happens. And that's why I've you know, built this sort of brand and identity as a trans athlete, because showing people and not just trans people, but showing cis people, showing anybody um, that trans athletes can compete and that we belong in sport is, is super important. You get a lot of publicity and it's not just the advocate now sports. It's the New York Times and the biggest publications in the country. Do you have a publicity team or is it you really out there trying to generate coverage of what you're doing? I wish I had a publicity team. It would be a lot easier. You know, I'm not a person to send out a press release about my own accomplishments. Um, I've sort of relied somewhat organically on on things happening and the new york times article that recently they came out about me being in the olympic trials uh timing for that was really perfect and i actually can't even remember how that came on my radar but but it wasn't a result of me sending a message to say you know can you cover this i certainly have done that and, and i and i think it's important because i do want people to know about my accomplishments and not from a very selfish, like self-promoting way, but for me, it's really the bigger picture of, it's really important that people see this and it can help change perspectives and understandings and expand people's information about the trans community. And ultimately going back to you know, my mission, my goal, um, help young people see themselves reflected back in sport. Do you hear from young people? Every day, every single day. What do they say? Yeah, it's, in, it's incredible. I mean, I, I get messages from people who are just thanking me for being visible because they say that they have seen themselves in sport. I've gotten messages from people who said that they gave up sport for years, found me online, and decided that they're going to go back into playing what they love as their authentic self. Um, and, you know, I think more than that, I, I get a lot of messages from kids who want me to help them with their school projects, which I think is really cool. Um, <laughs> I have done a lot, a lot of school projects. I've Skyped into classes before. I've done interviews on Instagram with people. Um, and you know, I try to help out as, as much as I can. And I get a lot of messages also from parents, which I think is incredible that parents reach out and say, you know, I have a, a trans son and I was really, really worried about what his future might look like, but we've found you, we've talked about you and I, and I see a, a happy, successful future for him and i didn't know that that was possible and those are the messages that really drive me and inspire me to continue to be out to compete to to use my platform to help people see trans people in sport how much of the opposite do you get the hate messages or just completely uneducated nonsense i definitely get some <laughs> i would say i get a fraction of what any transgender woman in sports gets. And I can say that with great confidence that the amount of hate and the type of hate that I receive is more dismissive of any sort of possible success that I might have. And sometimes it's you know really outrageous stuff critiquing my uh, appearance or you know making comments that are just clearly intended to push buttons to uh, incite a reaction. But, you know, I, I do get people, but I have a personal rule, like never read the comments. Yeah. If an article comes out about me, I will never scroll down. Um, if I do, it's a terrible mistake. I know every time I regret it, I won't go through the comment section of an article about me because I think that's just setting myself up for 
um, you know, seeing those things, of, of reading those things. And I don't need that negativity in my life. Um, something like Instagram, I, I reply to every comment almost on my Instagram, if I, if I can, every DM on my Instagram. And Twitter is uh, somewhere in the middle. So I get yeah. pulled into a lot of um, horrible commentary on Twitter and I largely ignore it unless I see an opportunity for, for learning, for growth, for education. Um, but my approach is very much coming from a place of love and understanding and sort of with the mantra of you don't know what you don't know. And so even you know, for some of these people who are saying things, I've had conversations with people online that have started off as a, as a troll comment, you know, clearly in trying to provoke me. And they've gone full circle and come back and been like, wow, I didn't know that. Thanks for spending the time with me to help me understand more about the community. And so I think that there is an opportunity for some people to get some education, to, to have a conversation, to learn and to grow. But at the same time, I have to balance, like, what is my personal responsibility to providing that education for everyone? And what is, you know, at, at, at what cost to my own mental health and, and sense of well-being do I do that? So there's a balance there in terms of how I deal with the commentary, but it's certainly um, less vicious, less, less uh, bile than any transgender woman in sport, even if they're at a high school level, is receiving. Recently, I wrote a, a piece about Fallon Fox that has stirred the hornet's nest, like few things I've written before. And um, I, over the years, I've come to realize that with trans athletes, there, there are three kinds of ignorance. There's just ignorance. They're just people who just really, they just are uninformed. They, they have a lack of information. Then there's willful, <clears throat> willful ignorance. The people who um, try to avoid information. And then there are the people who I call desired ignorance. They, they actually, <laughs> what they, they want to be ignorant on this issue. They want to speak like an idiot. And I find that Twitter is a lot of desired ignorance and mm -hmm. Instagram is a little bit of maybe willful and actual ignorance, but Twitter is just a cesspool of, of ignorance regardless. Yeah, I think it's challenging when you have people who have large podcasts, for example, who have a huge platform, who are spitting you know, just discriminatory statements and, um, you know, untruths, mistruths, uh, you know, statements that are not at all accurate on their podcast to, you know, hundreds of thousands of listeners. And I, I think that that doesn't help. And there are enough people paying attention to those sort of things that it sort of goes in line with what we've seen in this last political cycle of sort of empowering people uh, to to say whatever's on their mind, even if it is hurt, hurt, hurtful, harmful, discriminatory, racist, sexist, homophobic, transphobic, openly. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And, and you know, we live in this world where people can say something that is factually incorrect, that is completely wrong, and people will put it out there. And we live in this headline reading, Twitter scrolling world where we'll see that and ingest that as fact, whether it's true or not. You know, not a lot of people dig into the article or you know, <laughs> click the article in, in general. It's whatever we see on the headline we think is true. And when it comes time to make a retraction or a correction, people don't see that as much as they see the, the initial statement. 
And so we're left in this position where we have people, we have right-wing media folks, we have um, you know, people online intentionally trying to use stereotypes and, and you know, actual inaccuracies to paint a certain picture about transgender athletes or about queer people in general. And it's, it's our responsibility to sort of fact check them, but it doesn't land in the same way as that initial mistruth. So, you know, we're in a, a position where unless queer and trans athletes are going on the offense, you know, sharing our stories throughout sports and things like that, um, we're really in a position where we have to defend ourselves. And it, it's a lot less effective than, than having those proactive, positive stories come out in advance. Yeah, well, I, it's just awesome to see the, the positive stories that you have generated and just remembering again how we started this conversation back years ago and, and just and, and, and see how you've gone from, gosh, people just won't pay attention to what I'm doing to, oh, my God, I'm Team USA and everybody wants to talk to me. It's just so, it's just so cool. I'm so proud of you. Um, oh, thank you. Hang tight. We're going to we're going to dig into uh, after the break. We're going to dig into Chris Moser's experience at the U.S. Olympic trials. OK, we're back with Chris Moser. So, Chris, I want to I want to dive into. Well, the reason I'm having you on the podcast uh, is you competed in the U.S. Olympic trials. And one of the reasons that I like having LGBTQ people on this podcast about this issue is how special the Olympics are in the sports world, but just to talk about just what it was to be at the Olympic trials as an out trans man. What are some of the, what are some of the memories that you think you'll carry with you? And just, if you can just kind of like bring us there with you, help us see and experience a little bit, a little taste of what you felt there. Yeah, you know, it was a really incredible experience because this was my third race as a race walker. And so I've only done two other competitions before I was eligible for the Olympic trials. I did a 5K race in September, and I did my first 50K race, which put me in position to go to the Olympic trials in October. And so I feel like I already was coming into this with, um, you know, with fresh eyes because I don't know much about the community. And race walking is a very small community, as you could probably imagine. Uh, and and USA track and field races are very different than USA triathlon races, which is what I'm used to. So I really had this, you know, just going into it with with kind of no expectations, um, but having had the experience of being at world championships and national championship races in the past, so I expected it would obviously be a pretty big deal. Uh, to, to actually be there, you know, it was really awesome. And here's the outsource moment that kind of got pulled in is at our pre-race meeting on the night before the race, I met Matthew, who you had featured uh, yeah. recently. And I, he, I don't think he knew who I was, but I went over to him and said that I saw the article and just that I was really proud of him and really rooting for him. And we had a super nice exchange. And actually, when I ended up dropping out of the race on race day, you know, I, I became part of his cheering squad and was really rooting for him. So that was a really special moment to, to know that there was another out athlete there at that competition. And that's something that I haven't really experienced in these bigger races that I've done. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's somewhat rare to, to be around 
uh, people who have been in the media and who are open about their identity. So that was really special for me and something that I'll definitely take away. Um, I think that I, I texted you some photos afterwards with um, his family and the, you know, the pride flag. And, and that was just a really special moment to see him at the finish line, um, holding up a flag, kissing his husband. You know, it, it gives me goosebumps to even think about because it's so um, not in line with the stereotype that we have about sports and about these big competitions. So it's really, really special to, to experience that part. Did you ever feel, quote, other there that that you were just you were different from everybody else or or did really feel just like kind of another one of the athletes did anybody make did anybody say anything or do anything or any subtext that made you think no gosh there it is again no you know what i felt awesome there and i've had just you know i can't say enough positive things about the race walking community in general I had this really funny moment in my first 50K race in October where uh, the other racers, I think some of the other racers knew who I was and had seen either you know, my social media pages or had some sense without any media about me being at that race because there was none, uh, kind of had a sense of who I was already. And so when I ended up starting the race and I was in this group of, of, of walkers, as we're going along, one of the guys turned and looked at me and said, so, was it harder for you to come out as a transgender athlete or as a race walker? And I thought it was the funniest thing because at that point, I actually had not come out as a race walker. I was keeping it really low key and just kind of feeling out the sport. And, you know, I thought it was, it was funny because I, that was sort of the moment where I, I was like, wow, I'm fully accepted here. Like there was no question and, and no animosity, no discrimination from any athlete, uh, judge, official, anybody. And I just had full support and felt really you know, embraced by the community at that point. I had a journalist ask me yesterday if I thought that USATF or the IOC or uh, USOPC felt embarrassed about me being at the Olympic trials. And I thought it was such an odd question. And what I think he was saying was because there was no media at that race, there was no big um, production by USATF. They didn't, they didn't publicize my presence. Um, USOPC didn't say anything about it or about that moment in history. And I thought, you know, I, I really did not get a sense that it was a discriminatory act by them or that they felt embarrassed by me or, or anything, you know, quite to the contrary. I've had a wonderful experience with the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee. I've had a wonderful experience with USA triathlon. And so I didn't sense that USA track and field would be any different. I really think it's just that, you know, going back to the start of this conversation, I do fly under the radar. And, you know, without me promoting that I was going to be there and what this moment might mean, my, my resume and my history has really been, uh, you know, break that ground and talk about it after, not have the media there in advance to make a big production of it which at the same time I thought would be a real um, sort of jerky thing for me to do being the new guy to the sport and then come in with all the cameras and, and make a big production. So I'm really happy with talking about it afterwards. And, but I, I don't think that they were embarrassed by me. And I, I really had nothing but uh, positivity and, and acceptance when I was at the race. I've talked to, to a couple of people in and around the NFL and kind of asked, you know, why is the league not making bigger deal out of Katie Sowers being the first 
um, woman in the first uh, gay per, gay person in the Super Bowl, and certainly yeah. the media, the media is, has finally you know latched onto the story. But the response has kind of been, we just it feels odd. Like yes, we we, we celebrate her, but it feels odd to say, hey, look at us, look at us. Here's here's a woman in the Super Bowl. Here's a gay person in the Super Bowl. Look at us. And I can imagine uh, USA Track and Field and the USOPC being concerned about looking like flashing Chris Moser in front of the TV cameras is like a bit of tokenism. Like, here we go. Here's yeah. the guy. Yeah. You know, and I, I get that. And I think that that's true actually across how media covers me in general. And I think, you know, there was that moment in 2015 making the national team, challenging the IOC policy getting that change and then competing in the world championship at the same time, having a Nike ad and being naked in the body issue, right? Like that was clearly a really big year for me. <laughs> and that's where I ended up in Esquire and Rolling Stone and, and some of those cross publications, a lot of publicity in ESPN at that time. But, you know, it's really interesting about the Olympic trials. And like I said, I don't have a publicity team. I'm really depending on people seeing this on social media in order to get the coverage. The Times picked me up before this race even happened, but in the aftermath of this, it's only been LGBTQ plus publications that have said anything about me breaking this barrier, about me being the first known mm -hmm. trans athlete to compete in the Olympic trials and the gender with which they identify, because ESPN has not covered it. None of the sports organizations, and I don't know if Sports Illustrated is still a thing, but like, you know, like, no, running, Runner's World didn't cover it. You know, it's, it's, it's really been just a queer issue. And I think that's really interesting, particularly at this moment in time when transgender athletes are being used across the country as a political agenda item, yeah. right? Like we, we have nine states in the United States right now that have bills on the table that are specifically targeting high school transgender student athletes. Crazy. which is unprecedented because it has been high school state associations that create these policies, never state government. You know, and we have over a dozen other states that are trying to ban affirmative uh, care for trans youth at this time. And so, you know, this is really a, a very of the moment topic. And yet the publicity and the, and the press around this has been exclusive only to the LGBTQ plus publications, no sports organizations, you know, and despite the fact that I actually know people at ESPN and it was like, what's it do you got to do to get covered? And, you know, it, it's not important to those organizations right now to be talking about this. But at the same time, I guarantee if we have a trans woman who makes the trials or who is on the podium in the next six months, that, that that's going to be something that is going to be wanted to, to, to be talked about because that's the controversial moment. And I think a lot of the coverage outside of a few organizations is focused on controversy, not on success, not on groundbreaking, not on progress. Not on affirmation. It's, uh, it's something that we struggle with at Outsports all the time. You know, there's so, there's so much negativity out there that we can be covering and how do you cover it in smart intelligent comprehensive way while at the same time not falling into the trap of all of your coverage being negative how do you how do outsports yeah. maintain the kind of positive energy we have around 
of what what we do and it's 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 a struggle most publications they they run head first every controversy they can find we we don't really do that but i understand that controversy drives eyeballs and so I, so I so I I understand from a news perspective and a business perspective why I just of course wish that more places approached it the way we do. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's what's you know that's what sets your your uh, publication apart, and it's what also um, you know makes it the most positive and affirming place for LGBTQ plus athletes is that you are sharing the stories of you do share stories of of struggle, but I think that's part of the narrative of, you know, leading up to that success and, and finding acceptance or, or not finding acceptance and dealing with it. And I think all of those uh, different versions of narratives are so important for people to see because there's not just one way to be a gay athlete or to be a trans athlete. There's not a singular experience that we go through. And the more that people see different experiences, which is you know, again, back to the point of why I think it's so important for me to be out personally and to use any opportunity that I have as a platform to make sure that people see me so that they can feel empowered themselves. Um, you know, having positive representation in the media was essential for me as I was coming out. You know, I was looking for that. I was craving it. So to have an outlet like Outsports that has all of that has been amazing. So uh, in the last couple of minutes here, I know the race didn't ended as you wanted to, but I, I, I would be fascinated to hear just kind of where your head was at and what was going on with you in the hour, two hours leading up to the race. And then kind of at what point did you say, I can't do this. I have to stop. Yeah. You know, I think so things started to really gain perspective for me that night before after I talked to Matthew and uh, who you should totally have on the show, please invite him. Um, you know, after I did that and, you know, I was about to leave that meeting and they said, we have t-shirts for you. And I thought, you know, I kind of laughed to myself because I was like, oh, another like, you know, race t-shirt with you know, the logo on the front or whatever. I thought it was probably be pretty cool, but they hand me this bag and it's a bag of 16 t-shirts in different sizes that all were light blue with the logo on the front of Olympic trials. And then on the back, it says Team Mosier. And it was t-shirts for my support crew and every athlete of the 15 athletes that participated got these specialized t-shirts. And I was like, wow, that is really, that's really special. It's really cool. It's a really nice thing. And you know, I, had, I had that sort of building uh, in my mind that next morning, I came out to the course and it was a very short race course. It's 1.25 kilometers for a 50k race and they have to be that short so that the judges can watch your form the entire time but you know it's kind of mind-bending to just keep doing this l-shaped race um i was actually i parked towards the end of the race and i walked over to the front and it's a really special moment to see the olympic trial starting and finish line you know set up and uh, at the beginning of the race, they did a quick bio read of the 15 competitors and, you know, you would walk out and wave to everybody. And it's it just a really cool uh, moment. And I think that really drove home for me the significance of me even being there. You know, this is my third race in a brand new sport yeah. that I started seven months ago. And so there was a little bit of, of uh, out of body experience there. And I think it really hit me when we did the national anthem at the beginning and, 
um, you know, that was a, a really special moment because I realized it's, it's such a privilege for any athlete to compete on behalf of their country. And it's, you know, I've, I've worn the Team USA kit before. I know what it means to me as an athlete to, to be there. But then I always, always have this sort of feeling of what it means for my community for me to be there. And all of those things sort of weighed on me at the beginning. Uh, but, but when I started the race, I, you know, I knew that I was kind of faced with two choices of either, you know, I, I knew I wasn't going to win. I was not going to the Olympics and making this. It's just not the way that it works. In order for anyone to make the Olympic team at that race, they would have had to have done a 50K race walk in three hours and 50 minutes. And right. for perspective, no one, none of the competitors, even the first place guy, did not achieve that standard. He was off by 20 minutes or 15 minutes. So I knew that that wasn't happening. I wasn't getting automatic birth into the Olympics. And that was never my goal. It was really to be in the Olympic trials, uh, was sort of what I set out to be when I started this. Um, so, you know, I, I knew that that was my future. And I thought, okay, I can either really push hard and, and potentially hurt myself on an injured leg, um, but for what reason, or I can make a very hard decision to pull out of this race and live to race another day. And, uh, you know, in thinking about my big picture plans, which include racing for a very long time um, and winning as much as I can, I did not think that that was uh, a good idea for me to risk further injury um, in order to participate. So it was actually really quick into the race that I pulled out. Uh, I did two laps of 40 laps and, um, you know, kind of had a really disappointing and painful time watching the rest of the race from the sidelines. But um, I, I, I know in my heart it was the right decision to make. And I am looking at getting surgery now for a torn meniscus and, um, you know, taking care of this so that I can continue to be competitive moving forward. Well, I, you made the right choice. To, <laughs> you, you, the last thing you want to do is be dealing with even deeper knee injuries uh, as an athlete. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Smart move, but still so proud of you for having gotten there and for continuing to set the bar higher for yourself. Because <laughs> I remember you talking about doing this stuff six, seven, eight years ago. And uh, and here you are doing it. So it's just it's just amazing, Chris. I can't get enough of you. Um, oh, thank uh, you. But I really appreciate you you joining us and, and sharing your, your Olympic trials experience. Thank you. It was an awesome experience. And, uh, you know, just I'm really happy. I was not the first athlete, first trans athlete in the Olympic trials. You know, you've covered Keelan Godsey before, who did, uh, was it 2008, 2012 Olympic trials in the female category? 12, yeah. So I think it's really 12, yeah. Really important to mention Keelan and, um, you know, acknowledge that that this has been done before, but, but not in this way. And I'm just really proud to have had the opportunity to be there personally for myself as an athlete, but also for folks to see me there and know that, you know, the next athlete can maybe go even further. Of course, I was just enjoying my conversation with Chris so much, like I do every time I talk with him, that I forgot to leave time to ask him the two questions I end every podcast with. Well, I guess that'll be reason to have him back another time. Do follow Chris Mosier on Instagram or Twitter at the Chris Mosier. 
He's got a lot of great information on there that's going to be important for people to know and understand over the next year or two as a lot of state legislatures and other people take aim at trans inclusion policies, particularly in high school. So it's going to be an important fight for us to, to wage. And uh, do follow Chris because he's going to have a lot of information about where you should be focusing your efforts. Um, come on back next week. I, uh, I have a pretty good idea of who the guest is going to be, is a former Olympian. But you never will know what happens with schedules. Uh, either way, we'll be back next week. So we will talk with you then. Mm-hmm.